the longer I work with people who want to lower their pollution levels, who want to hurt other people and wildlife less, and yet still keep doing it, what keeps them going? To some degree, I feel that they're addicted and there's something inside them that their brain has been rewired to choose compulsively short-term pleasure over long-term adverse consequences. That's the definition of addiction. But what's going on inside their minds? What is the wiring? What does it feel like? What is that thinking? And I think I've gotten very close to the root here of why people still feel they have to do things that they know pollute, that they know lower Earth's ability to sustain life or hurt themselves and hurt other people. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you, that if you look back in time, say look back a thousand years ago to serfs living in Europe, they were living in the mud, 30 was old age, they were working all the time, it was miserable. We may have pollution now, but man, it's brought, what pollutes has also brought us tons of benefits that thankfully we don't have to live like that anymore. Does this sound familiar? And, and if we go farther back to the Stone Age, the reason we put on fat so quickly now is that our ancestors back then never knew where their next meal was going to come from. It was so doubtful that they had to store every bit of fat that they could in order to store that energy. Mothers were all dying in childbirth, or not all of them, but a lot of them, and they were barely eking out survival. So if you go very far back, the farther back you go, the more precarious life was, the more we barely made it. And if we project, extrapolate further from medieval times to now, it gets better. And if we project forward, it gets yet better. And so the last thing we want to do is to revert back to living like serfs or living like the Stone Age, if you can even call that life, because we barely made it. From this perspective, the idea of reducing consumption sounds like we're risking going back to those times. And so the alternative to a gasoline car is not a bicycle because that risks going backward. It's not not driving. It means we have to go to electric vehicles powered by solar, powered by wind, powered by nuclear. The idea of less from that perspective risks reverting back to these dangerous times. We barely made it. Well, there's something wrong with that view. What's wrong with that view is history, anthropology, and archaeology show that it's wrong. They weren't living like that back then. That's a projection, I believe, a projection of our fears of what we're afraid of. For example, in medieval times, people worked something like 150 days out of the year. And the days that they did work, they had generous time off of, like they didn't work during lunch and things like that. Here, quoting from a paper from MIT. One of capitalism's most durable myths is that it has reduced human toil. This myth is typically defended by a comparison of the modern 40-hour week with its 70- or 80-hour counterpart in the 19th century. The implicit but rarely articulated assumption is that the 80-hour standard has prevailed for centuries. The comparison conjures up the dreary life of medieval peasants toiling steadily from dawn to dusk. We are asked to imagine the journeyman artisan in a cold, damp garret, rising even before the sun, laboring by candlelight late into the night. These images are backward projections of modern work patterns, and they are false. It continues a couple paragraphs below. Consider a typical working day in the medieval period. It stretched from dawn to dusk, 16 hours in summer and 8 in the winter, but as Bishop Pilkington has noted, work was intermittent, called to a halt for breakfast, lunch, the customary afternoon nap, and dinner. Depending on time and place, there was also mid-morning and mid-afternoon refreshment breaks. These rest periods were the traditional rights of laborers, which they enjoyed even during peak harvest times. During slack periods, which accounted for the large part of the year, adherence to regular working hours was not usual. Now, quoting another source, when Professor Juliette Shore released her book, The Overworked American, The Unexpected Decline of Leisure, the average American was shocked. According to her research, 
they were working more days and taking fewer vacation days than a medieval peasant. Unfortunately, the Bureau of Labor Statistics' latest available data only supports this notion. Indeed, the average annual hours worked by Americans in 2017 reached 1,780, whereas an adult male peasant in the United Kingdom worked an average of 1,620, which is to say over 100 less. What I'm quoting continues. The 70 to 80 hour work week for the average 19th century laborer in the Industrial Revolution was actually a deviation from the ways of their medieval predecessors. Arguing for an eight hour workday was not so much a push for the progressive, but a return to the days of yore. Indeed, medieval peasants enjoyed a less rigid workday. Meals weren't rushed and the afternoon might call for a nap. The tempo of life was slow, even leisurely. The pace of work relaxed, said Shore. Our ancestors may not have been rich, but they had an abundance of leisure. A 13th century laborer could have up to 25 weeks off per year. For reference, the average American worker has 16 days of vacation per year. They had, in many ways, more freedom than we do today. When 30 was old age then, only recently has life extended again to what it used to be beforehand. Now, there was infant mortality, a lot of that, but you don't need fossil fuels to fix that. But if you made it out of childhood, my understanding, I have a paper, I should link to it, something like 60, 70 years old was normal for most of human history. Now, there were deaths for other reasons that were not lack of food and things like that. I mean, there were accidents and things like that that we don't need modern pollution levels to fix. Of course, we should fix these things and not die young, but the natural age was something like 60, 70 years old, maybe 80. Here, I'll quote from the paper and I'll link to it. It says, the average modal age of adult death for hunter-gatherers is 72 with a range of 68 to 78 years. This range appears to be the closest functional equivalent of an adaptive human lifespan. I think by saying an adaptive human lifespan, is just saying that's what ancestrally we evolved to live. And it says below, jumping down a few paragraphs, our results contradict Valois's claim, so they're referring to a 1961 paper, that among early humans, so quoting Valois, few individuals passed 40 years, and it is only quite exceptionally that any passed 50. So that's the quote from this 1961 paper, and they continue, and the more traditional Hobbesian view of a nasty, brutish, and short human life. They continue, the data show that modal adult lifespan is 68 to 78 years, and that it was not uncommon for individuals to reach these ages. We have this belief that our ancestors reaching even 30 was lucky, or 40. It's based on thin air, mistaken assumptions, misbeliefs. They lived commonly into their 70s. And I'm getting in touch with uh, one of the authors of the paper to bring this person on, and learn more about longevity because it was not forever 30. That was the result of human, our culture at that time. So we used to work less. We had more freedom, certainly as in the Stone Age. I'm reading this wonderful book, The Dawn of Everything, that describes how many different cultures there were. In America, we tend to think, you don't want to be capitalist? Oh, then you want to be communist. The innumerable other cultures that lasted sometimes hundreds, thousands, the San Bushman as far as I can, from James Sussman, who lived among them and is an anthropologist at, uh, I think, Cambridge in England, and he was a guest on this podcast, tells me that they lived something like 300,000 years the way that they did. There is no way that people are struggling to survive for 300,000 years. They didn't even have the wheel, which tells me technology is not, when we have famines today, that's not because there's a lack of food. It's because we're distributing it poorly. And I believe that the first anthropologist, one of the early anthropologists to live among the San Bushmen in the Kalahari, uh, I think his name was Christopher Lee, I forget. I think 
I read that, and I think it was in Sussman's book, that when he lived among them, there was a drought. This is, I think, in the early 20th century. They had to send food from all around the world to people experiencing famine in this region, but not to the San Bushmen. They lived there for 300,000 years, and they, know, they just switched to, okay, when there's a drought, we switch to these plants and these animals to eat. Everyone else needed help because they were not resilient like our ancestors were, like we could be. And so this extrapolation backward, they lived with a more varied, uh, now um, my understanding of hunter-gatherer diets, as we understand them today and project that they may have been a long time ago, is that they eat a more varied diet, more healthy, plenty of abundance. They don't go hungry. I think on a fitness level, a lot of them are maybe not quite Olympic athlete level, but high up there. So this view that we have to keep from reverting back is backward. I try to find out where this came from, and I think there's a reasonable chance that it may have come through around colonial times when Europe was starting to colonize the rest of the world, the Renaissance. Our, well, if you're part of my culture, then our cultural ancestors started going around the world and people resisted. Here's a question to you. Why, if this culture with so much material plenty is so great, why did everyone resist? I understand that in North America, in the colonial times, sometimes it happened that Europeans and European colonists would get somehow stuck with Native Americans. And sometimes Native Americans would get stuck with the colonists or even in Europe. Apparently, the Europeans and the colonists, when they got stuck in Native Americans' uh, culture, they overwhelmingly wanted to stay. Native Americans, when they were in Europe, overwhelmingly wanted to return. I put to you that it's possible for one culture to defeat, to dominate, to override the other, say because it has more guns, while actually the people within it being less healthy and less happy and more miserable. I think that's what's happened. And that culture is what's going on today. And we have this story. Why did they resist? What I learned growing up was because they're so stupid. Our cultural ancestors had to civilize them so they could see the value of living our way. But they're not stupid. They looked at my ancestral culture and said, we don't want that. This is the opposite of what we want. Actually, I've just gotten out an extended quote of a man named Candy Ronk. He was the chief of the Hurons in, he lived 1649 to 1701 and spent some time in Europe, apparently met a lot of Europeans and people met him and, and they learned about each other's cultures. Here's an extended quote from The Dawn of Everything by anthropologist David Graeber and archaeologist David Wengro. So Candy Ronk, this is a Native American, and he is quoted as having said the following. I've spent six years reflecting on the state of European society, and I still can't think of a single way they act that is not inhuman, and I generally think this can only be the case as long as you stick to your distinctions of mine and thine. I affirm that what you call money is the devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evils, the bane of souls, and slaughterhouse of the living. To imagine one can live in the country of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining one can preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. Money is the father of luxury, lasciviousness, intrigues, trickery, lies, betrayal, insincerity, all of the world's worst behavior. Fathers sell their children, husbands their wives, wives betray their husbands, brothers kill each other, friends are false, and all because of money. In light of all this, tell me what we Wyandotte are not right in refusing to touch or so much look at silver. Do you seriously imagine that I would be happy to live like one of the inhabitants of Paris? To take two hours every morning just to put on my shirt and makeup? To bow and scrape before every obnoxious galoot I meet on the street who happens to have been born with an inheritance? 
Do you actually imagine I could carry a purse full of coins and not immediately hand them over to people who are hungry? That I would carry a sword but not immediately draw it on the first band of thugs I see rounding up the destitute to press them into naval service? If, on the other hand, Europeans were to adopt an American way of life, it might take a while to adjust, but in the end, you will be far happier. So the European he's speaking to says, try for once in your life to actually listen. Can't you see, my dear friend, that the nations of Europe could not survive without gold and silver or some similar precious symbol? Without it, nobles, priests, merchants, and any number of others who lack the strength to work the soil would simply die of hunger. Our kings would not be kings. What soldiers would we have? Who would work for kings or anyone else? Candy Runk replies, You honestly think you're going to sway me by appealing to the needs of nobles, merchants, and priests? If you abandon conceptions of mine and thine, yes, such distinctions between men would dissolve. A leveling equality would take place among you, as it does among the Wyandotte, and yes, for the first 30 years after the banishing of self-interest, no doubt you would indeed see a certain desolation, as those who are only qualified to eat, drink, sleep, and take pleasure would languish and die, but their progeny would be fit for our way of living. Over and over I have set forth the qualities that we Wyandotte believe ought to define humanity, wisdom, reason, equity, etc., and demonstrated that the existence of separate material interest knocks all those on the head. A man motivated by interest cannot be a man of reason. Other cultures looked at the culture that you and I belong to and couldn't stand it. And I put to you that we have created this story that all these other places were terrible. But why did they resist? Why, when they came into our culture, did they want to return? But when people from our culture ventured into theirs, they wanted to stay. My big takeaway from learning that this belief is wrong is, one, where did it come from? I think insecurities, people feeling like we're really hurting people and we have to justify why our life is actually better when it wasn't. And the story just stuck. It leads to we must keep pressing forward no matter what. We just do not want to revert back. And people have this idea that not pressing forward, that if we stop using fossil fuels, we must replace it with something else. And yet, when we look at other cultures, I don't mean other cultures like France or Japan. I mean other cultures like places that are neither capitalist nor communist, hunter-gatherer, uh, pastoral, they live just fine. We can learn from them instead of sending schools and missionaries and aid that they don't need. There are other stories at the root. A lot of people believe, well, if I don't do these things, I can't keep up with the Joneses. My neighbors will move ahead of me. Or at a national level, if my nation doesn't press forward no matter what, we'll get invaded. But these things aren't what happened historically. I'll have to treat those in another episode. But this belief that if we go back in time, it gets worse and worse and worse. And therefore, whatever pollution we have, we have to accept it and we have to mitigate it, but we can't stop producing it. Well, it's based on a lie. Our ancestors were not on the verge of death for 300,000 years. This thing about us putting on fat so quickly because they were on the verge of death. Our pets are getting fat now. That's not because of our pets didn't have our ancestors. They're getting fat because the marketers have figured out how to press the buttons to get you to buy food for them too because they just want to sell stuff. And to think that we need technology, to think that nature is a super dangerous place that if we don't protect ourselves, then we're going to get all destroyed. First of all, those plagues that happened back then doesn't look like we're exiting pandemics today. And all those predictions that we were going to have a pandemic before this current pandemic, those predictions still stand. Just because we had one pandemic doesn't mean there's not a decent chance of another one coming soon and going global overnight because we over-travel, because we travel so much, where it used to have taken longer. It's just one piece of evidence that we don't need 
as another way of seeing that we don't need the latest technology and we must push for innovation and technology to make it, to barely eke out surviving and not revert back to that. Animals do just fine without us. There is an animal that is called the sloth. That It does so little. It's purely slothful. It just sits there and just doesn't really do much. And they were around, I read, for something like 28 million years and did just fine. What did them in? I mean, there's still some around, but some species have gone extinct. What did them in? Well, they did fine for 28,000 years and then went extinct in the past several thousand years. People. Why do we think we can drive so many other species extinct and not make ourselves go extinct? This is the risk. 300,000 years with, without technology, people lived fine. Then for tens of thousands of years, we populated the whole planet with minimal more technology. Now, in one, less than one one thousandth the time of 300,000 years, just from the Industrial Revolution until now, there are genuine predictions of our population dropping precipitously, possibly going extinct. In, that's what took our culture less than one one thousandth the time that our ancestors did just fine. We can learn from them. I put to you that we should learn from them. All right, so this is, I wanted to treat this view that I think people hold in the back of their minds and they feel like, well, it must be true. It must be. How can it not be true? How can we not be living in the best times ever? Because we're not. There are many things that are going well. I am not saying technology is bad. Technology is certainly, throughout history, technology has brought things that have improved our lives, things that I think everyone would agree. We like these things. Infant mortality is lower than ever. It's also polluting the world. It's turning the world into skid row. The question I ask you is, the balance right now is more innovation leading to more improving lives or more skid row. For up until, I don't know, maybe 50 years ago, I think you could say technology was improving lives. But in recent generations, I think it's pretty clear the more effect is the skid row effect, that we are more turning Earth into skid row, and that's happening faster and faster and faster because in large part of these beliefs... We do not need to press forward on technology and innovation. We don't need to keep pressing forward away from this horrible past. In fact, it seems to me that a lot of this, these beliefs are driving us toward working more hours, having less freedom, now lowering health indicators, lowering longevity, but we don't have to keep pressing forward no matter what. We don't have to replace fossil fuels with solar and nuclear and things like that. We can just use less and expect that that will improve our lives.